0: Welcome to Smart Talk, I'm Scott Lamar. High levels of lead in Flint, Michigan's water supply motivated many cities and states across the country to take a closer look at their own water sources and infrastructure. What they found generally is that their water supplies are not in danger. But there are other sources of lead, to, uh, that can lead to health problems, including some here in Pennsylvania. Joining us on today's program is Dr. Lauren Robinson, Deputy Secretary for Health Promotion and Disease Prevention with the Pennsylvania Department of Health. Dr. Robinson, welcome to the program.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: If you have a question or a comment about lead in Pennsylvania, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at i All right, gonna we'll start with a broad question. How much of a threat is led in Pennsylvania.
1: Lead is actually a big threat in Pennsylvania. Uh, the reason for that is that Pennsylvania ranks third oldest in the country for our housing stock, meaning the houses and the buildings, the farms, barns, everything in Pennsylvania. Uh, 70% of our buildings were built and or painted before 1978. And so because the paints that were used before 1978 uh, contained lead, we're at a higher risk, where children at a higher risk for lead poisoning, because also since that paint is older, it starts to chip. And once uh, the lead paint chips, children pick things up, put them in their mouth, dust gets on their toys, chips, uh, lead paint chips get in their mouth, and that's the primary way we're seeing children uh,
0: have these higher lead levels. See, that may surprise some people hearing this, that uh, uh, Pennsylvania is at a high risk for lead. I seem to remember a time, maybe 20, 30 years ago, where there was a great emphasis, a lot of public service announcements, a lot of talk about uh, uh, lead poisoning, lead chips, lead paint chips. Don't hear so much about it today.
1: That's true. And I think there was a big effort to educate people. There were a lot of buildings that were painted over as well. So you've, you've got older buildings that actually aren't at risk now because all their lead paint has been covered up. It would be very difficult to go across Pennsylvania, scrape all the lead paint off of everything we have, and then repaint it with paint that doesn't have lead in it. Uh, And so there's a lot more. There had been efforts to do lead abatement by patching up the places that were chipped. Uh, But I think that... That's probably been about 10, 20 years ago, and those buildings probably are starting to chip a little bit more. And that's why we're seeing—and now in Pennsylvania, we have seen higher lead levels in children for years. Um, and because of that, we're a state that monitors uh, lead across our state. Um, I think every—it's— it's, it's primarily led by children's pediatricians. But I think in some some newer states, they really focus their efforts or interventions or education just on the cities, because they know that in the suburbs, they're dealing with uh, newer houses. In Pennsylvania, it's, that's just not the case.
0: When was the cutoff point? I, I, I said... I know in my research, I saw that uh, houses built before 1978, but those built before 1950 really had great potential for having lead-based paint.
1: Right. So I think around the 50s and 60s, people started to realize how much paint was in the lead. And so there started to be a shift. And so we say 1978 to be uh, on the safer side, Um, but it is most of the, the issue is that Every house built before 1958, paint always included lead. And as kind of new technologies in paint uh, started coming through in the 50s and 60s, you started to see decreasing levels of lead in paint because there were other additives that were added in to make the paint last
0: longer other than lead. I want to talk a lot about paint during uh, your appearance on today's show, but uh, I noticed that uh, you didn't mention water. Uh, Flint has gotten so much attention because of their high levels of lead in the water. Uh, Do we have an issue with lead in water here in Pennsylvania?
1: So uh, the Department of Health doesn't monitor lead in water. Uh, Fortunately, we have the Department of Environmental Protection, and they do a wonderful job at just um, monitoring our water kind of on a um, town-by-town basis. So each town uh, has to report on each of their water management systems. So every company that manages water across the Commonwealth has to test their water for copper, for lead, uh, for metals, for all kind of materials. Obviously, uh, people aren't thinking of other things, but we have to make sure that there's not a lot of bacteria on our water, and the Department of Environmental Protection does that. Uh, And also, people can look up on the Department of Environmental Protection's website. You can look by your county, find your water management company, and look and see exactly how much lead is in your water at any time. Um, But you're right. We don't have an issue with uh, lead in the water in Pennsylvania, thankfully.
0: But there was uh, an article on Vox.com a few weeks ago that got so much attention because it's the, the headline itself said 18 cities in Pennsylvania have higher lead levels than Flint in their water supplies. What about that article?
1: Yeah, I think that that was uh, quite an, eye- an eyebrow raiser. Yeah, <laughs> I think pretty- I uh, got a few more white hairs that day. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it was a, a good article to bring this uh, issue home so that people could understand what issues we have in Pennsylvania and how we can make a difference um, for the health of our children. So the article focused on um, 18 cities in Pennsylvania. We have a a lead report that's released every year by the Department of Health that looks at uh, city by city what lead levels are in children. Um, There's been some changes to... um, nationally, there's been some changes to what are the cutoffs in terms of how, where we report this as an elevated level. Um, there's also been cutoffs in, in term a change in cutoff in terms of when we intervene. So in the past, and I'll, and I'll start by saying this, um, I'm, a, I'm a pediatrician, we say there are no safe levels of lead. So I think that's difficult because if you have your child tested and their level comes back at five or eight or 10, we have no way of telling you if your child is at risk for something based on what that level is. We just know we want to get it as low as possible. And if something is abnormal and it's above a certain level, we need to do an inspection of your home to... Figure out what's going on there. Is your child? Is there paint on the walls? Is there lead dust? Is your is the home newer? But maybe the child spends time at grandma's house all day, and grandma's house is older. Uh, does the child go to a, an older school, or maybe the the window seals? And so, I think it's it's a it's a community level issue as well. Um, just that we take stock of what's going on in our communities and try to figure out how we can how we can improve that.
0: But those eighteen cities, where how did they measure that?
1: So there, and is it
0: accurate? I guess is the big question.
1: Right. And so the way that they measured is, uh, so we'll step back a little bit. Uh, like I was saying, your uh, pediatricians uh, are the ones who check lead levels. Uh, the Department of Health helps to uh, advise families after a lead level comes back increased on what they can do <clears throat> Excuse me, to, uh, to inspect their homes or to look around for what the lead threat can be. In Pennsylvania, because we have a lot of smaller or moderate-sized cities that have older infrastructure, those are the cities that um, you saw in the report that had the higher lead levels. Also in Pennsylvania, the children right now that are getting tested most often and most frequently are children who are on medical assistance. And so a child who's on medical assistance is thought to be high risk because they're more likely to live in an older building or a building that has an older infrastructure or a rented property that might not have been renovated. There's a lot of public housing that's been renovated across the Commonwealth. And you see brand new housing that's for uh, people on medical assistance. However, in uh, some of our smaller cities, That that renovation hasn't gotten there yet. And so as we're testing children who are of lower socioeconomic status or who are living in in older buildings, we do see higher lead levels in them, and we're testing more of them. So you would expect in a child who you think is higher risk that they would probably have a higher lead level. I think that if we had uh, mandatory testing or mandatory mandatory universal testing, if we tested all children, these rates would go down because you'd be testing a, a larger pool of people.
0: I guess we're, um, and as you said, DEP is the one who tests, uh, the uh, agency that tests water. I guess what I'm getting at is, uh, the bottom line, are there lead levels that are too high in those 18 cities, in the water?
1: So, in the water, no. I think uh, the water in those cities is fine. I think the, the challenge in that article is that it was kind of comparing apples and oranges. So, Flint was a water issue. We have a paint issue. And so... While, yes, we do have uh, elevated lead levels in some cities across the state, it's not the water that we need to be worried about. It's our it's our paint that we need to make a, an intervention on.
0: You, and again, DEP probably be a better uh, place to uh, answer this. But it does appear that there are some pockets, though. I, I mean, now, this is not a water supply that services a lot of people, a city or a municipality. I just saw an article in the Lancaster newspaper yesterday that uh, one of those roadside spring water stands. Uh, in Adamstown, Lancaster County had lead levels that were three times higher than what is acceptable. So it seems as though there probably are some pockets out there. But the good thing about that was DEP picked it out and solved. Wow. And so uh, the people are warned when, when these things occur. Um, you said that... Uh, any lead is too much. Any, so I, I guess my one, my question, when we're still talking about water, before we get into too much of paint, one glass of water with high lead, is that damaging? You wouldn't see an increase
1: in your blood lead level from one glass of water. I think one of the things also um, in Pennsylvania that makes us unique is that we have a lot of people who have uh, wells. And so uh, if you're someone who has a well, as is the case for, like we were talking about, the other um, things that can contaminate water, you need to turn your water on and let it run before you start to cook or before you drink with it. Um, just because as water sits in pipes, it kind of corrodes the pipe. And that's how you get the water, the lead kind of wearing off into the water.
0: Mm-hmm you know, I'm curious, Do uh, are wells tested?
1: Wells are not tested. That's a good question. We looked into that. So wells are not tested. Um, when someone has a well on their property, there I think there are, like, testing kits, or you can have someone come out and specifically test your well. Um, but they're not part of the DEP testing.
0: Mm-hmm. So what are the health effects of, of lead contamination, well, or I should say, uh, lead exposure?
1: So they vary. So they can range in a, in a child from um kind of fatigue irritability um we there's a there's a condition called anemia meaning the child's blood counts are low um uh at the very at the very far end of severe um you can have severe um uh, effects on the brain so um, learning disabilities delays seizures um, that would be at an extremely extremely high lead level um, we have a we have a uh, there's a universal threshold for treatment for lead poisoning which is a lead level of 20 or higher um, and we um, don't have in Pennsylvania children who have levels. That are that high.
0: You use those numbers earlier. You said yeah. two, four, six, eight, and now you're talking about twenty. Uh, what are you talking about? How are those those levels of lead measured?
1: Sure. So uh, this it's a blood test. Um, a child would need to have their blood uh, drawn uh, at their pediatricians and then tested for lead. And usually, what'll happen is we'll have we'll the the first the test that would say you're okay would say this le- there's a lead level less than five. So if your lead level says less than five. You're totally fine, and we don't follow up on that. That's considered normal. Uh, A lead level of greater than five or between five to ten would trigger uh, us sending a letter to the house, or would said would trigger a letter being sent to the house to let parents know your uh, child's lead level is above the cutoff for normal. Meaning you need to take uh, an you need to. Take a look around your house, um, and we and we give a list of things for parents to look for that could be contributing to lead poisoning um, in their house. Now, a lead level greater than 10 or in between 10 and 20, we have community health nurses who will um, help the pediatrician to make sure they get in touch with the family, follow up. Um, they'll have <clears throat> excuse me, uh, they'll have uh, the house um, looked at and inspected, and then the child would. Um, uh, then needs to be followed up and have a, another lead level in about three months.
0: Now, as you mentioned, you're a pediatrician. Have you ever seen a child with a lead level over 20? Never. Never. I never have. It's the highest I, you've ever seen.
1: I think it would probably be back when I was in training in North Carolina. I think maybe in 11. Um, so so uh, the children who are most at risk are small children. So uh, the recommendation from the American Academy of Pediatrics is that you test test children uh, who are at high risk uh, around the age of one, so sometime between nine months and a year, uh, and then again at two. So those are the times when children are starting to be mobile, starting to put any and everything in their mouth. They figure out how their hands work. And for the most part, up until one, children are either breast or formula fed. And so, um, one, you're thinking that you're, as a parent, you're thinking that's all they're putting in their mouth really is this formula. You're not realizing that they may be putting these lead chips in in their mouth. And then, what happens as children start to eat more things? So, especially um, nutrition is a big point. A big point I want to make, also as a as a pediatrician, because as they eat green vegetables, it helps your body um, kind of get rid of lead. So, if if you're a child whose lead level was kind of borderline or a, a little bit elevated, and once they start eating a, a regular diet, especially fruits and vegetables, will help them kind of break down and get rid of lead in their body.
0: We'll talk more about that in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing lead in Pennsylvania, lead exposure, uh, lead contamination, lead poisoning, just a lot of topics surrounding the topic brought, that has been brought up by uh, Flint, Michigan's water supply. Our guest is Dr. Lauren Robinson, Deputy Secretary for Health Promotion and Disease Prevention with the Pennsylvania Department of Health. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF. UITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Maybe you have a story to tell about letting your own home or a question to ask about lead in your own home. Dr. Robinson, this may be anecdotal because I don't know if you know the answer to this or not, but when we're talking about those numerical lead levels, the children in Flint, do we have any idea what uh, levels have come back to those kids?
1: In terms of what their blood levels yes. are? Yes. I think... The theirs were, I think, greater than fifteen. I think. Oh wow! And See, think,
0: now that kind of puts it in perspective. Right,
1: and I think that's the other thing about the article that um, was a little bit misleading. And so when I looked at it, I, I thought it was saying our our kids have levels of twenty three. So the the top number was twenty three percent, and it looked from the way it, from the way the article was set up, it looked like. They were saying that our our kids had levels of 23 in their blood. Um, But if you read kind of the small print, and once you put it all together, they're saying 23% of children tested had a lead level greater than 5, which is a lot of steps to get to as opposed to saying this child had a lead
0: level of 23. Yeah. So again, going back for some context, Mm -hmm. in your career, you have never seen a lead level over 11, and that was in another state, Mm -hmm. and these children in Flint are looking at 15 15 to 20. Uh, again that really puts it in perspective of of, of of what the how dire the situation is in in Flint, Michigan. Uh, as we said, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, you've been talking about a lot today is older homes. Um, those built before 1978, but those especially built um, in in the 1950s or before here in Pennsylvania that had lead uh, lead-based paints. Um, for someone and something else you mentioned, I want to clarify on this too. You said that many people, and thinking about it, many people have painted over. If we paint over lead paint with a non-lead paint, it should be okay.
1: It should be totally okay. So the once you paint over lead paint, it's it's fully covered up, and so the risk again is the lead is the chips because kids will eat them. And and the thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that uh, they taste sweet. Which is probably why children like to put them in their mouths. If they didn't taste good, they probably wouldn't eat them. But uh, lead paint kind of has a sweet taste to it, um, so that's also probably why children put them in their in their mouths. But if you paint over it, and the paint isn't chipping, it's it's a pretty good abatement strategy. Um, you also need to be mindful for lead dust. So I think, that was my next know, question. If it's if it's not chipping, you're not going to have as as much dust from it. Um, And also when they're painting over the the chipping lead paint, a lot of times they'll put either like a sealant or a primer and then put the paint over top. And the new paints um, really have a lot of good latex in them, and that makes them a little bit more resilient in terms of uh, chipping.
0: Now, is it just chipping, but say there's a lead-based paint on the wall, just coming in contact with that if it's not chipping, is that the danger? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Okay. That's
1: not enough. That's not enough uh, paint. Even if even if you just every day just slept with your hands touching the wall, uh, wouldn't get you to a lead level greater than five.
0: You mentioned dust, and you said that most often it uh, is near where there are chips. Are there other sources of uh, lead dust?
1: Um, so I think so. I, I live in Philadelphia, and um, and anytime um, you have a, so construction sites, you'll see construction across across the uh, Commonwealth. Um, but I know in, in in Philadelphia, especially, there's a lot of old buildings coming down and new buildings going up. Um, and so, in cases like that, you could have your your home may be totally fine, but maybe you open your window because yesterday it was 71 degrees, um, and there's some construction going on, and you're not even realizing that dust is kind of blowing in and building up. So I think just making sure you're uh, kind of aware of your surroundings. Um, obviously, you're not going to be standing by a construction site inhaling dust. But if you're if you're a grown-up, you know, obviously wearing a mask, um, grown-ups aren't at much as risk, at risk for lead poisoning, again, mainly because of our diet. Because we um, eat so much, um, our body is able to break lead down if we are exposed and
0: kind of get it out. See, now this is one of the things that I, I wanted you to clarify as well, is that it sounds as if— children in particular uh, you know just from what I'm read that you know sometimes there there can be permanent damage but are you saying that some of the effects of lead can be irreversible if, if uh, or reversible I should say
1: so the I think that the It's not that the effects can be reversed. I think uh, depending on what the symptoms are, so if you have a child who has anemia due to lead, you can reverse that. So um, usually what would happen is a child who has anemia would be treated with iron to get their um, blood levels higher. Uh, And then anemia is a a reversible thing because your blood supply uh, kind of uh, renews itself every uh, certain number of days. And because of that, you're able to reverse anemia. Now... Uh, if you go as far as to have very, very high levels that are not caught, uh, something like brain damage would not be reversible. And so that's why we really want to catch it. Um, and that's why I think it's important to get an idea of exactly what are we looking at in Pennsylvania. We need to get a better—I We need. I think we need— um, Better or more data, and I think we can do that by having a program where we screen every child if we screened every child in the Commonwealth, we could see exactly where the pockets are um, I think when you when you test children sporadically, you don't know is it is it just this one house is it just this one community we don't know and now this child you're not going to test them again because now they're three or four um, and you're and they're thought not to be a risk anymore because they're eating a, a regular diet um, so I think if we did screen all children, at least for a certain amount of time, then we could get a better picture of exactly what's going on in Pennsylvania and where we need to intervene.
0: And I think I know the answer to this question just from what you're saying, but I want to ask it anyway. Uh, how do we treat, medically, how do we treat a, a child that has high, high lead levels?
1: So there, uh, a child's pediatrician would refer them to uh, a hematologist. That's a blood disorders doctor, because um, the the treatment is called chelation. Um, and so you need to administer um, usually orally and IV, a treatment that would help the the lead be kind of pulled out of the body. So what happens is uh, the lead gets bonded up by this medication and then excreted out. So, mm-hmm.
0: But those foods that you were talking about, mm-hmm. what are some of them?
1: Uh, so the great ones are the green leafy ones, uh, which are the same ones that help um, when people have anemia and your doctor says, eat more spinach. So spinach, uh, green, anything green, uh, pretty much. The, the, the green vegetables are the ones that really help uh, the body break down lead and, and excrete it or get it out.
0: You touched on this, but I'm, I'm curious. Uh, we've been talking almost exclusively about children. Um, when you also mentioned that uh, diet has something to do with it. But why aren't, uh, why aren't adults uh, impacted by this quite as much?
1: I think the—so the reason adults aren't uh, impacted by lead poisoning as much is because we eat more. We have a a more diverse diet than children do. I think one of the reasons that the small children are at risk is that they're drinking either um, formula or breast milk. Um, And I think when you have a child who's exclusively breastfed or only drinking formula— that doesn't give their body enough of a, a diverse diet to bind up that lead and excrete it out. Once they get to be three or four and they're eating everything else, including you know pizza and hamburgers, um, those things actually help a child to um, digest and get rid of any toxins that are that are in their body.
0: So just so I'm clear here, are you uh, a pediatrician from the Department of Health recommending pizza and hamburgers uh, <laughs> <laughs> to three and four year
1: olds? <laughs> nah, <I joke>. quite. <laughs> Not quite, unless they're made 100 percent vegetables. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a veggie burger. There you go. <laughs> um, so, uh, I'm, one of the th- I'm thinking of also with adults is with uh, in in Flint. I mean, the the adults have mm-hmm. been exposed to as much lead, maybe even even a, over a longer period of time, than the children. And and that's going to be
1: interesting to see. I think right now we're focused on the children also because they they grow so fast and we want to make sure that we're not uh, delaying their development kind of mentally and also their physical growth. Um, We want to make sure that we ensure that they're safe. But I think it would be interesting to... Understand if there have been effects of the lead in the water and flint on the adult population, and i'm I'm not sure who you know would do that study i think as as pediatricians we are are very vocal and you kind of have a captive audience because parents are for the most part pretty good about bringing their kids to the doctor but uh as an adult who has not probably seen their doctor as frequently as I should have <laughs> uh, we're we're just not as good as going to the doctor so
0: yeah, so that does have something to do with it. But I'm, I'm wondering whether this whole dynamic changes things, not only in Flint, but across the country. As we said, it has brought so much attention to an issue that we haven't heard about in a long time. So I'm wondering whether, I mean, it's, it's definitely brought attention to infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder whether now parents, when they go to take their child to the pediatrician, say, hey, what about lead? Or maybe take a look around their own home.
1: Yes. I I think, you know, I've talked to my colleagues, not only in Pennsylvania, but in other states, and I think parents are concerned and want to know what what the pediatrician's office is doing, what is the state doing, how do I know that my child is safe from lead? Um, And I think the next jump is going to be, well, well, hey, how do I know that I'm safe from lead? And I think it's going to be an interesting discussion going forward to figure out um, if there are effects or if there are things that we need to be thinking about in our our adults as well.
0: So, uh, one final question. What kind of advice would you have for Pennsylvanians relating to lead?
1: I think that I would recommend that everyone take their children to the pediatrician, and I would advise pediatricians to uh, test everyone. For now, I think we need to get a better idea of what's going on. You know, I'm hoping that we can we can come together uh, with our legislature to um, get a bill together that will advise or advocate for screening all children. For uh, lead poisoning, and I think the other thing that's important is that we need to be accountable for our infrastructure. So I think uh, property owners, landlords, uh, even if you know they're not your children, if they're children living in houses that you own. Um, take the first step to go to do an inspection. Look to see, do you have chipping paint? Do you have dust around? And find someone who can inspect your properties to make sure you're not putting someone else at risk.
0: Okay. I said that was a final question. Now you just raised another question in my mind. Landlords, that is a really good point. Uh, What legal responsibility does a landlord have? So right
1: now, I, I would say it's more of an ethical and moral obligation. So you, as a landlord, have to have a property inspected to make sure the foundation and everything is sound. But we don't have a lead mandate in Pennsylvania that mandates that inspect that that landlords uh, conduct lead abatement or even a lead inspection. And I think that that's something that we need um, so that it holds people accountable.
0: So if a renter uh, sees that uh, you know the property that they're renting. Uh, has lead, you know, has lead paint, lead-based paint, uh, there are chips, and uh, that renter goes to the landlord and says, hey, would you take care of this? There, He's under no, he or she is under no legal obligation.
1: Not from a state perspective. There are uh, kind of city and, and town uh, mandates, and uh, there are regulations on a kind of on a local level in some cities, but not all.
0: In fact, Laura in York is on the phone and has an example. Laura, you're on the air.
1: Oh, hi. Uh, There was a case in
2: New Hampshire uh, where my mom lived. I think just last year, a landlord was convicted. They have a law in New Hampshire about lead abatement, and he forged the papers and rented to a family that had small children. And a child ingested the lead and became very ill and was taken to the hospital eventually. But the hospital had no idea what was wrong with her because they had never seen lead poisoning, and she died. And the the landlord was convicted last year and is now serving a jail term. And I wondered if the doctor had heard about that case.
0: Mm. Hey, Laura, I'm glad you brought it up. Thank you very much for your call.
1: That sounds terrible. I had not heard of that case. I'll have to go back and read about it now. But I think that that speaks to the importance, I think, of having the law uh, and also of of reminding people and, you know, as, as with anything else, you think that something is gone and you start worrying about another issue and then this thing from the past comes back. So I know uh, my mom is a, is a nurse and she was telling me about whooping cough and we had never seen whooping cough. We all have our, our pertussis shots, uh, but pertussis is back and we're seeing whooping cough again. Uh, and so just when you think you've gotten rid of a disease or something going on uh, in terms of public health, it comes back. So I think it definitely is important for pediatricians, not only in the clinics, but also in the hospitals, to be thinking um, outside the box. Yeah, we haven't seen lead poisoning in years, but if you see a child who's irritable and who's throwing up, it makes sense just to add that test on, so
0: you can do something about it. A couple, I hate to correct you, but you said we all have had those shots. Nowadays, we, as you know, there are a lot of people who are opting out of of those shots. You know when. I was uh, three and four years old. Yeah, we, we all did have that. But there are some people now that uh, are having those shots. And you're right. We haven't heard of whooping cough in years. And we've heard uh, just a number of cases. Even in Lancaster County, I know there we were like three uh, just last week reported. So, uh, you know, people have to take a look at that. But uh, Dr. Robinson, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, learned a lot. And, uh, you know, hopefully this gets uh, some people thinking out there. Thanks for having me. All right. Dr. Lauren Robinson is the Deputy Secretary for Health. Promotion and Disease Prevention with the Pennsylvania Department of Health. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. One of central Pennsylvania's most popular attractions, especially at this time of year, could close without an influx of money. Millions of migrating waterfowl stop at the Middle Creek Wildlife Management Area on the Lebanon-Lancaster County line near the end of every winter. The Pennsylvania Game Commission is pushing for an increase in hunting license fees to generate money needed to maintain Middle Creek and for other expenses across the state. License fees have not increased since 1999. Joining us is Travis Lau, Press Secretary for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Travis, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks, Scott. Glad to be here.
0: Let me tell our listeners that if you have a question or a comment about uh, Middle Creek, maybe other game commission issues, give us a call 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, let's get right to it, Travis. Uh, Why is there the potential for Middle Creek Wildlife Management Area closing?
2: Well, uh, Middle Creek is on the chopping block just like programs and, and departments throughout the agency are. As you pointed out, it's been more than 17 years now since that last license fee increase was approved back in 1999 and became effective. Now, the Game Commission, some might not know, is, is unlike a lot of other state agencies. The Game Commission doesn't get a general fund appropriation. It doesn't essentially get tax money from Pennsylvanians. The Game Commission is funded through the state's hunters and trappers almost exclusively. Now, that breaks down in a couple of different ways. One important stream of revenue is that hunting license fee revenue. Now, uh, in, in the current fiscal year, Hunting license fees are expected to account for about 35% of the Game Commission's revenue. But but that's a, a low percentage compared to how important hunting license fees have been in funding the Game Commission historically. Back when that last license fee increase was approved, uh, license fees accounted for 56%. So there's been a drop-off there. What has really bailed the Game Commission out in, in uh, making the agency able to uh, fund regular operations over the, past, uh, over the course of the past several years has been an uh, increase in, in our energy development uh, we have a one point five million acre uh, system of state game lands. We have uh, uh, active Marcellus shale drilling, and that 's been the big driver for that increase that we 've seen but with with Marcellus markets now down, we expect to see about two and a half million dollars less in revenue in the current fiscal compared to last year so that's that 's a shrinking pool of revenue. Still an important pool of revenue where we expect to to bring in $22.5 million from our oil, gas, and mineral program. So aside from Marcellus, there are things like uh, coal development, uh, timber sales, account for that sum. Uh, In addition to that, uh, the Game Commission does get a uh, a, a federal grant allocation from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. It's known uh, commonly as Pittman-Robertson Funds. Uh, these come from a federal excise tax that's placed on sporting arms and ammunition before they're sold, and then the federal money is doled out to the states based upon the number of, of licensed buyers each state has.
0: I want to talk uh, more specifically about Middle Creek in just a moment, but uh, what does an adult hunting license cost nowadays?
2: The, the, the hunter pays, uh, resident hunter pays $20.70. Now, there's a lot of talk. Uh, like for for instance, in the news release that we put out after legislation was introduced last week to increase the hunting license fee, uh, about a $19 fee. Uh, the additional $1. seventy cents is, is split into two different fees, one which is paid to the license-issuing agent, and then the other, which is, is an administrative fee that goes back to the PAL system, which which uh, distributes our licenses.
0: We have a, a call here. Our listener wasn't able to stay on the line. Linda from Humblestown, she said she heard that... Uh, Hunting is down. I assume she's talking about participation, and the volume of licenses is also down. Is that true?
2: That that, that is correct. Now that is not a uh, a problem, if you will, that's exclusive to Pennsylvania. It's it's uh, Pens- Pennsylvania's trend has been uh, very much the mirror image of a national trend. In in Pennsylvania, the peak year for light for hunting license sales has been was 1982, and uh, Pennsylvania sold right around 1.3 million licenses in 1982. And then since that time, it's been a, a generally steady decline. Uh, here in recent years, we did see a little bit of a bump. But uh, in the previous license year, and in, in our license years uh, match most fiscal years where we run on July 1 to June 30, so in the 2014-15 license year, uh, we sold uh, just more than 944,000 hunting licenses, and that's, that's a number that's representative of individuals.
0: And I promise we're going to get on to Middle Creek in just a moment, but uh, do have to follow up on this. I mean, that's a problem with your model then, Travis, isn't it? I mean, if you're relying on revenue from hunting licenses, even if you get an increase in the fee... If there's not as much participation, you're not going to bring in as much money.
2: Well, that, that's correct. And then you could make a further argument there, too, that, that uh, you know, and, and it, it's not our model. It's the North American model of wildlife conservation, where hunters and trappers really fund all wildlife conservation, both for, for game and non-game and, you know, of, of course, that when I said uh, going into it that, that it was almost exclusively, the Game Commission was almost exclusively funded by our hunters and trappers, certainly it's not exclusively funded by our hunters and trappers because we do get donations from from non-hunters. We do get other streams of revenue not related to hunting. But uh, But, no, that's the way that it's been done in the United States where hunters have footed that bill. And, you know, when we get into tough times like this, often it is uh, non-game species that that are the first to, to see cutbacks. Uh, because those hunters expect something for their licensed dollar.
0: Well, that is a good segue into uh, Middle Creek. Uh, why Middle Creek? I mean, it, it's not definite that it's closing, but why was uh, Middle Creek uh, mentioned as uh, a wildlife management area that may have to be closed?
2: Well, M- Middle, Middle Creek is one of those facilities for the Game Commission that that is different than most of our other operations. When I mentioned that we have a 1.5 million acres system of state game lands, most of those game lands tracks, while they do undergo habitat management, while there, while there is manpower uh, thrown into them, uh, it's it's not nearly as intensive as it is at a place like Middle Creek. Now, at Middle Creek, you know, in in, in addition to uh, the habitat we have there, the wetlands habitat, the agricultural fields, the high grass fields, we have the visitor center, we have a recreation area. So there, there's more to it just in having the staff to fill those areas to keep the visitor center open. Now, the, um, the of course, This is the busy time of year for Middle Creek. Uh, While it looks like the snow goose migration might be tailing off now, we're still pretty steady at at about 50,000 birds a day. Once that migration blows on out of Pennsylvania, then the activity at Middle Creek, as you might expect, would tail off too. So we do have busy times of the year. We do continue to to, uh, do field trips for summer camps and schools through the rest of the school year and on through summer, but, but this is our busy time of year. So what, to, to answer your question, the, um, in, the game commission's look at spending at Middle Creek stems mostly from that fact that it is a higher-maintenance facility, and we're looking at those facilities as, as part of a larger, um, a larger look at how we can cut costs to keep the agency afloat while we await a license fee increase. But Middle Creek has been singled out here, and I understand that because the facility is so important to so many people, and especially here in central Pennsylvania. But, but when we talk about the potential for cuts at Middle Creek, um, that we're, we're talking about something where we don't have a real proposal, where counter to that, uh, the cuts that have already occurred within the agency, um, layoffs, uh, closure of another facility, uh, the decision to forego recruitment of a new WCO class. Th- these are having immediate impact on, on the agency and on our hunters and trappers and wildlife enthusiasts in Pennsylvania now.
0: I saw a figure that it costs about $862,000 to uh, maintain middle Creek, I have to admit that uh, I was surprised at how high that number was
2: right that that number is associated with uh, nine full time personnel now we are down one there, so that eight hundred some thousand dollar figure does stem from the previous fiscal year but uh, but yes you're looking at employee costs there um, salaries benefits and and you need those employees to again do that specialized work that the facility requires
0: when you say specialized work what kind of specialized work
2: well in addition to staffing the visitor center and that's one of them when when you have a facility that's high use like middle creek is you have the demands that are that are laid out by the by the visitors there you have if you have gated roads you need to unlock the gates If you have parking lots and you have snow in the parking lots, you need to clear the parking lots. So you have that work that's associated with visitors there, and then you have some specialized habitat work that's occurring there too to take care of the waterfowl and other wildlife that uses Middle Creek. A lot of Middle Creek is closed to public access to to, uh, give give the waterfowl and other wildlife their refuge and, and otherwise protect it.
0: Now, I just want to be clear here because, uh, you know, we focus so much on cost and uh, what is available at Middle Creek for us humans. But uh, if Middle Creek was to close to the public, the birds would not stop coming, right?
2: I I would imagine that you're right there. I would think that the birds... Don't care much one way or the other, whether the visitor center. so <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling. Yeah. Now, now the, the, that said, the visitor center is an important outreach tool. But, but again, outreach like the like non-game species in general are, are always the are oftentimes the first default of the sword when you have serious cuts that you have to make. Uh, I, I think that the visitor center at Middle Creek is an important tie between hunting and non-hunting, uh, the, the, many of the visitors who go out there to witness a snow goose migration uh, might have no hunting background, might not really appreciate that role that hunters play. And, and, and as we talked earlier, the important role hunters play stems from their funding of all the wildlife conservation here. The Visitor Center at Middle Creek makes that bridge for, between those people who don't understand the role that hunters play in funding wildlife conservation. All
0: right, let's take a phone call from Corey in Lancaster. Corey, you're on the air.
3: Hi. Um, I uh, just wanted to add uh, a comment that I got from uh, some some hunters the other weekend. Um, I I was up at uh, actually the hunting cabin, and uh, we were sitting around, and I mentioned to these guys that uh, it's been proposed the possibility of shutting down uh, uh, Middle Creek. Due to lack of funding, Um, I had said at that point that I wondered if it is possibly, you know, a farce intended to create some political motivation. And then I said, how much would you guys be willing to pay? Would you be willing to pay, you know, a few bucks more for for your licenses, given that Pennsylvania pays some of the lowest fees in the country? And they all, you know, didn't bat an eye, said, yeah, I'd be willing to pay more. One guy then raised the question, how much more would you be willing to pay? And, you know, we all basically made the point, we love hunting so much, and we also realized that our fees go to maintain the land. So, you know, we all said, like, we would be willing to pay. We'd be willing to pony up. We just don't want to see uh, public lands being closed down.
0: Corey, thank you very much for your call. Travis, what do you think of that?
2: We don't want to see public lands being closed down either. And, and with, with Middle Creek, uh, you know, it, again, in, in trying to paint that, that broader picture of of the tough times we're facing here at the Game Commission... It, it's, a, it's a bit unfortunate that, that Middle Creek has been thrown out there in this context because we don't have a proposal to close it. We, what we're doing is we're looking at those higher maintenance facilities and, and we hope we don't have to step in and, and, and make any of those tough decisions and, and we're hoping that that license fee increase comes to our rescue. Now we, we had proposed a license fee increase of $10 initially and then uh, and subsequent increases of $5 in subsequent years. Uh, We now have legislation that we're fully behind that calls for just one increase, uh, which would be a $10 increase in the cost of a resident hunting license. And then there are a number of of other increases. Most hunting licenses, like your archery licenses and your bear license, would increase under that proposal. It's Senate Bill 1148. It was introduced last week to committee, and a hearing has been scheduled for April 7th.
0: Uh, It is free, To visit the the visitor center at Middle Creek and other facilities across the state. Would you ever consider charging a fee?
2: Um, I think that all options are on the table at this point. Uh, The game commission had discussed a user fee for state game lands, and and that discussion took place over several months last year, and ultimately that discussion was placed on the table, and and it hasn't been brought back up. Uh, There there was a lot of opposition to that idea um, that People would be charged to hike on game lands, even though that is a model that a, a lot of states have adopted for their public lands that they uh, it, it, that they're responsible for the maintenance
0: of. We hate uh, to see that. What what's that? I said we hate to see that because it has been free and it's it's there. It's land. The,
2: and and the discussion has been has been renewed here with talk of of closing other facilities like Middle Creek um but uh but again we haven't really moved that proposal off the table
0: if you're just tuning in, uh, we're speaking with uh, Travis Lau, who is the press secretary for the Pennsylvania Game Commission and uh, talking about the possible closure of the Middle Creek Wildlife Management Area on the Lancaster-Lebanon County line. Uh, if you have a question or comment, give us a call, one eight hundred seven two nine seven five three two. 729 7532 Send an email to smarttalk at org. Leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is one eight hundred seven two nine seven five three two. 729 7532 Before we take a few more calls, just want to Uh, you know, get an idea for those who have never been to Middle Creek. They probably have seen the pictures because at this time of year, there are so many people taking photographs. Uh, There's so much in the media, so many pictures you can see. Actually, we have a few photographs on our website today, WITF.org. It's just absolutely beautiful and something that you very rarely will see, uh, that many birds, uh, that much in in the way of waterfowl in one place. Do you have any idea when numbers how many birds visit uh, Middle Creek uh, at this time of year?
2: Yeah, our uh, staff out at Middle Creek does take daily inventory first thing in the morning and, and puts out updates on on our website, and and we're able to to track the uh, the timing of the migration and, and and when peak times might be through that effort. Now, uh, when I mentioned earlier that we're holding on at about fifty thousand snow geese, um, that has been for for most of this week. Uh, we did estimate the peak number of snow geese using Middle Creek this year. Um, this was back March 15th at 110,000. But that, even that number, as, as big as it is, um, isn't as, it wouldn't, wouldn't amount to a record by any means. Uh, you have, um, in, in some years, that snow goose migration uh, pushing 200,000 birds.
0: Uh, how many species are we talking about?
2: Well um with with the 110,000 we're talking exclusively snow geese. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh tundra swans a, another uh seasonal visitor through Middle Creek. Uh tundra swans are a lot like snow geese where their nesting area is in the Arctic uh that their wintering area is uh through down through the chesapeake bay uh, as far south as north carolina and when they make that flight north they're looking for that open water where they can stop over and and some stay for a few days and some stay for a few weeks uh... before before making that final track uh... final trek up north um, but in addition to tundra swans and snow geese it, practically any any variety of waterfowl that you could imagine there um, plus so- songbirds Bald eagles are frequent sightings at Middle Creek, deer and turkeys. It really has everything, uh, but but, um, really it has everything that those migrating waterfowl want and need. All
0: right. We only have about three minutes left. I'll try to get to as many calls as I can. Uh, Park is in Sunbury. Park, you're on the air.
3: Hi. Um, My question is, um, we we no longer have pheasant hunting like we used to. Deer hunting is really, really scarce up in uh, Pine Creek Valley, where I've hunted for many years, for 60 years. And the young fellows, this next generation coming on, don't even want to come up there anymore because there aren't any deer to shoot, any buck to shoot. We don't shoot, though. No. But um, And then also, my question is, like most other state agencies or government agencies, is our pension fund... For your game commission causing you financial trouble. Those are my two questions. All right,
0: very good question. I don't know if you can address the deer situation, but uh, because you know you, we do hear that in some areas of the state. But what about pensions in the game commission?
2: Well, yeah, that that's an, that's a driving factor of our cost increase there. And I, I don't have the exact number of employees in our complement now versus back in 1999 when that last license fee increase was approved. But it's, it's somewhere about 20 fewer positions now and somewhere around twice the personnel cost uh, for the Game Commission compared to 1999. Uh, pensions factor into that. Uh, a lot of our employees are, are uh, contracted uh, through negotiations. They're union employees. The Game Commission doesn't really have any control of their costs. But uh, in, in the last fiscal, our, in our personnel costs, which would be an all-inclusive term that would in, include salaries, benefits, and those pensions, uh, were around $82 million.
0: Hmm. Travis, we only have about a minute or so left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. We had a couple calls here, real good questions. You touched on this one, but uh, Tara asked uh, about uh, fracking revenue. And the second question is from Ernie who asked, uh, could there be a Friends of Hunters license asking for donations?
2: Yeah, w- we've heard that. We do have now a voluntary conservation stamp that we sell for $3. We've never had a whole lot of interest. People might buy it as a memento, but given that it's not mandatory to use game lands we don't sell very many of them of course that's an option when people ask me uh and particularly in 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 relation to the potential closer middle creek uh what they can do to help out they can donate to the game commission it's easy we have a button on our website you can earmark donations for middle creek as a matter of fact some of the upgrades that have have occurred at the visitor center there in recent years uh donations played a played a big role in in leading the way for that but uh... but buying a hunting license you can't be buying a hunting license for funding conservation in pennsylvania because essentially the the game commission not only gets that license fee revenue it gets that federal match revenue
0: hey travis you mentioned earlier we're we're out of time but uh, you mentioned earlier that fracking uh, you do get revenue from fracking in pennsylvania but because uh, of supply or drilling and uh, natural gas debt being down so much you're not getting as much travis lyle with the pennsylvania game commission thank you very much for being with us today
2: you're welcome scott thanks for having me
0: coming up tomorrow a refugee a witness i should say to syrian refugees escaping the war-torn country